Procedural due process. When the government seeks to burden a person's protected liberty interest or property interest, the Supreme Court has held that procedural due process requires that, at a minimum, the government provide the person notice, an opportunity to be heard at an oral hearing, and a decision by a neutral decision-maker. For example, such a process is due when a government agency seeks to terminate civil service employees, expel a student from public school, or cut off a welfare recipient's benefits. The court has also ruled that the due process clause requires judges to recuse themselves in cases where the judge has a conflict of interest. For example, in Caperton v. A.T. Massey Coal Company, 2009, the court ruled that a justice of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia had to recuse himself from a case involving a major contributor to his campaign for election to that court. Incorporation. While many state constitutions are modeled after the United States Constitution and federal laws, those state constitutions did not necessarily include provisions comparable to the Bill of Rights. In Barron v. Baltimore, 1833, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the Bill of Rights restrained only the federal government, not the states. However, the Supreme Court has subsequently held that most provisions of the Bill of Rights apply to the states through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment under a doctrine called incorporation. Whether incorporation was intended by the amendment's framers, such as John Bingham, has been debated by legal historians. According to legal scholar Akhil Ridamar, the framers and early supporters of the 14th Amendment believed that it would ensure that the states would be required to recognize the same individual rights as the federal government. All these rights were likely understood as falling within the privileges or immunities safeguarded by the amendment. By the latter half of the 20th century, nearly all of the rights in the Bill of Rights had been applied to the states. The Supreme Court has held that the amendment's due process clause incorporates all of the substantive protections of the first, second, fourth, fifth, except for its grand jury clause, and sixth amendments, along with the excessive fines clause and cruel and unusual punishment clause of the eighth amendment. While the Third Amendment has not been applied to the states by the Supreme Court, the Second Circuit ruled that it did apply to the states within that circuit's jurisdiction in England v. Carey. The Seventh Amendment right to jury trial in civil cases has been held not to be applicable to the states, but the Amendment's re-examination clause does apply to a case tried before a jury in a state court and brought to the Supreme Court on appeal. The excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment became the last right to be incorporated when the Supreme Court ruled in Timms v. Indiana, 2019, that right to apply to the states. Equal Protection Clause The Equal Protection Clause was created largely in response to the lack of equal protection provided by law in states with black codes. Under black codes, blacks could not sue, give evidence, or be witnesses. They also were punished more harshly than whites. The Supreme Court in Strauder v. West Virginia said the 14th Amendment not only gave citizenship and the privileges of citizenship to persons of color, it denied to any state the power to withhold from them the equal protection of the laws, and authorized Congress to enforce its provisions by appropriate legislation. In 1880, the Supreme Court stated in Strauder v. West Virginia specifically that the Equal Protection Clause was designed to assure to the colored race the enjoyment of all the civil rights that under the law are enjoyed by white persons, and to give to that race the protection of the general government, in that enjoyment, whenever it should be denied by the states. The Equal Protection Clause applies to citizens and non-citizens alike. The clause mandates that individuals in similar situations be treated equally by the law. The purpose of the clause is not only to guarantee equality both in laws for security of person as well as in proceedings, but also to ensure the equal right to the laws of due process and impartially administered before the courts of justice. Although the text of the 14th Amendment applies the Equal Protection Clause only against the states, the Supreme Court, since Bowling v. Sharp, 1954, 
has applied the clause against the federal government through the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment under a doctrine called reverse incorporation. In Yikwo v. Hopkins, 1886, the Supreme Court has clarified that the meaning of person and within its jurisdiction in the Equal Protection Clause would not be limited to discrimination against African Americans, but would extend to other races, colors, and nationalities such as, in this case, legal aliens in the United States who are Chinese citizens. These provisions are universal in their application to all persons within the territorial jurisdiction, without regard to any differences of race, of color, or of nationality, and the equal protection of the laws is a pledge of the protection of equal laws. Persons within its jurisdiction are entitled to equal protection from a state. Largely because the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 has from the beginning guaranteed the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states, the Supreme Court has rarely construed the phrase within its jurisdiction in relation to natural persons. In Plyler v. Doe, 1982, where the court held that aliens illegally present in a state are within its jurisdiction and may thus raise equal protection claims the court explicated the meaning of the phrase within its jurisdiction as follows, say of the phrase within its jurisdiction confirms the understanding that the 14th Amendment's protection extends to anyone, citizen or stranger, who is subject to the laws of a state, and reaches into every corner of a state's territory. The court reached this understanding among other things from Senator Howard, a member of the Joint Committee of 15, and the floor manager of the amendment in the Senate. Senator Howard was explicit about the broad objectives of the 14th Amendment and the intention to make its provisions applicable to all who may happen to be within the jurisdiction of a state. The last two clauses of the first section of the amendment disable a state from depriving not merely a citizen of the United States, but any person, whoever he may be, of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or from denying to him the equal protection of the laws of the state. This abolishes all class legislation in the states and does away with the injustice of subjecting one caste of persons to a code not applicable to another, it will, if adopted by the states, forever disable every one of them from passing laws trenching upon those fundamental rights and privileges which pertain to citizens of the United States, and to all persons who may happen to be within their jurisdiction. The relationship between the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments was addressed by Justice Field in Wong Wing v. United States, 1896. He observed with respect to the phrase within its jurisdiction, the term person, used in the Fifth Amendment, is broad enough to include any and every human being within the jurisdiction of the Republic. A resident, alien-born, is entitled to the same protection under the laws that a citizen is entitled to. He owes obedience to the laws of the country in which he is domiciled, and, as a consequence, he is entitled to the equal protection of those laws, the contention that persons within the territorial jurisdiction of this republic might be beyond the protection of the law was heard with pain on the argument at the bar, in face of the great constitutional amendment which declares that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The Supreme Court also decided whether foreign corporations are also within the jurisdiction of a state, ruling that a foreign corporation which sued in a state court in which it was not licensed to do business to recover possession of property wrongfully taken from it in another state was within the jurisdiction and could not be subjected to unequal burdens in the maintenance of the suit. When a state has admitted a foreign corporation to do business within its borders, that corporation is entitled to equal protection of the laws but not necessarily to identical treatment with domestic corporations. In Santa Clara County v. Southern Pacific Railroad, 1886, the court reporter included a statement by Chief Justice Morrison Wade in the decision's headnote. The court does not wish to hear arguments on the question whether the provision in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which forbids a state to deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, applies to these corporations. We are all of the opinion that it does. This dictum, 
which established that corporations enjoyed personhood under the Equal Protection Clause, was repeatedly reaffirmed by later courts. It remained the predominant view throughout the 20th century, though it was challenged in dissents by justices such as Hugo Black and William O. Douglas. Between 1890 and 1910, 14th Amendment cases involving corporations vastly outnumbered those involving the rights of blacks, 288-19. In the decades following the adoption of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court overturned laws barring blacks from juries, Strauder v. West Virginia, 1880, or discriminating against Chinese Americans in the regulation of laundry businesses, Yikwo v. Hopkins, 1886, as violations of the Equal Protection Clause. However, in Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, the Supreme Court held that the states could impose racial segregation so long as they provided similar facilities, the formation of the separate but equal doctrine. The court went even further in restricting the Equal Protection Clause in Berea College v. Kentucky, 1908, holding that the states could force private actors to discriminate by prohibiting colleges from having both black and white students. By the early 20th century, the Equal Protection Clause had been eclipsed to the point that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. dismissed it as the usual last resort of constitutional arguments. The court held to the separate but equal doctrine for more than 50 years, despite numerous cases in which the court itself had found that the segregated facilities provided by the states were almost never equal, until Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, reached the court. In Brown the court ruled that even if segregated black and white schools were of equal quality in facilities and teachers, segregation was inherently harmful to black students and so was unconstitutional. Brown met with a campaign of resistance from white Southerners, and for decades the federal courts attempted to enforce Brown's mandate against repeated attempts at circumvention. This resulted in the controversial desegregation busing decrees handed down by federal courts in various parts of the nation. In Parents Involved in Community Schools v. Seattle School District No. 1, 2007, the court ruled that race could not be the determinative factor in determining to which public schools parents may transfer their children. In Plyler v. Doe, 1982, the Supreme Court struck down a Texas statute denying free public education to illegal immigrants as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment because discrimination on the basis of illegal immigration status did not further a substantial state interest. The court reasoned that illegal aliens and their children, though not citizens of the United States or Texas, are people in any ordinary sense of the term and, therefore, are afforded 14th Amendment protections. In Hernandez v. Texas, 1954, the court held that the 14th Amendment protects those beyond the racial classes of white or Negro and extends to other racial and ethnic groups, such as Mexican-Americans in this case. In the half-century following Brown, the court extended the reach of the Equal Protection Clause to other historically disadvantaged groups, such as women and in illegitimate children, although it has applied a somewhat less stringent standard than it has applied to governmental discrimination on the basis of race, United States v. Virginia, 1996, Levy v. Louisiana, 1968. The Supreme Court ruled in Regents of the University of California v. Bakke, 1978, that affirmative action in the form of racial quotas in public university admissions was a violation of Title V of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. However, race could be used as one of several factors without violating of the Equal Protection Clause or Title VI. In Gratz v. Bollinger, 2003, and Grutter v. Bollinger, 2003, the court considered two race-conscious admission systems at the University of Michigan. The university claimed that its goal in its admission systems was to achieve racial diversity. In Graz, the court struck down a points-based undergraduate admission system that added points for minority status, finding that its rigidity violated the Equal Protection Clause. In Grutter, 
the court upheld a race-conscious admissions process for the university's law school that used race as one of many factors to determine admission. In Fisher v. University of Texas, 2013, the court ruled that before race can be used in a public university's admission policy, there must be no workable race-neutral alternative. In Scoot v. Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action, 2014, the court upheld the constitutionality of a state constitutional prohibition on the state or local use of affirmative action. Reed v. Reed, 1971, which struck down an Idaho probate law favoring men, was the first decision in which the court ruled that arbitrary gender discrimination violated the Equal Protection Clause. In Craig v. Boren, 1976, the court ruled that statutory or administrative sex classifications had to be subjected to an intermediate standard of judicial review. Reed and Craig later served as precedents to strike down a number of state laws discriminating by gender. Since Wesbury v. Sanders, 1964, and Reynolds v. Sims, 1964, the Supreme Court has interpreted the Equal Protection Clause as requiring the states to apportion their congressional districts and state legislative seats according to one man, one vote. The court has also struck down redistricting plans in which race was a key consideration. In Shaw v. Reno, 1993, the court prohibited a North Carolina plan aimed at creating majority black districts to balance historic underrepresentation in the state's congressional delegations. The Equal Protection Clause served as the basis for the decision in Bush v. Gore, 2000, in which the court ruled that no constitutionally valid recount of Florida's votes in the 2000 presidential election could be held within the needed deadline, the decision effectively secured Bush's victory in the disputed election. In League of United Latin American Citizens v. Perry, 2006, the court ruled that House Majority Leader Tom DeLay's Texas redistricting plan intentionally diluted the votes of Latinos and thus violated the Equal Protection Clause. State Actor Doctrine Before United States v. Cruikshank, 1876, was decided by the United States Supreme Court, the case was decided as a circuit case, Federal Cases No. 14897. Presiding of this circuit case was Judge Joseph P. Bradley who wrote at page 710 of Federal Cases No. 14897 regarding the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. It is a guarantee of protection against the acts of the state government itself. It is a guarantee against the exertion of arbitrary and tyrannical power on the part of the government and legislature of the state, not a guarantee against the commission of individual offenses, and the power of Congress, whether express or implied, to legislate for the enforcement of such a guarantee does not extend to the passage of laws for the suppression of crime within the states. The enforcement of the guarantee does not require or authorize Congress to perform the duty that the guarantee itself supposes it to be the duty of the state to perform, and which it requires the state to perform. The above quote was quoted by United Supreme Court in United States v. Harris, 1883, and supplemented by a quote from the majority opinion in United States v. Cruikshank, 1876, as written by Chief Justice Morrison Waite. The Fourteenth Amendment prohibits a state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and from denying to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, but it adds nothing to the rights of one citizen as against another. It simply furnishes an additional guarantee against any encroachment by the states upon the fundamental rights which belong to every citizen as a member of society. The duty of protecting all its citizens in the enjoyment of an equality of rights was originally assumed by the states, and it still remains there. The only obligation resting upon the United States is to see that the states do not deny the right. This the amendment guarantees, but no more. The power of the national government is limited to the enforcement of this guarantee. Individual liberties guaranteed by the United States Constitution, other than the 13th Amendment's ban on slavery, protect not against actions by private persons or entities, 
but only against actions by government officials. Regarding the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court ruled in Shelley v. Kramer, 1948, the action inhibited by the first section of the 14th Amendment is only such action as may fairly be said to be that of the states. That amendment erects no shield against merely private conduct, however discriminatory or wrongful. The court added in civil rights cases, 1883, it is state action of a particular character that is prohibited. Individual invasion of individual rights is not the subject matter of the amendment. It has a deeper and broader scope. It nullifies and makes void all state legislation, and state action of every kind, which impairs the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, or which injures them in life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or which denies to any of them the equal protection of the laws. Vindication of federal constitutional rights are limited to those situations where there is state action meaning action of government officials who are exercising their governmental power. In Ex Party Virginia, 1880, the Supreme Court found that the prohibitions of the 14th Amendment have reference to actions of the political body denominated by a state, by whatever instruments or in whatever modes that action may be taken. A state acts by its legislative, its executive, or its judicial authorities. It can act in no other way. The constitutional provision, therefore, must mean that no agency of the state, or of the officers or agents by whom its powers are exerted, shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Whoever, by virtue of public position under a state government, deprives another of property, life, or liberty, without due process of law, or denies or takes away the equal protection of the laws, violates the constitutional inhibition, and as he acts in the name and for the state, and is clothed with the state's power, his act is that of the state. There are however instances where people are the victims of civil rights violations that occur in circumstances involving both government officials and private actors. In the 1960s, the United States Supreme Court adopted an expansive view of state action opening the door to wide-ranging civil rights litigation against private actors when they act as state actors, for example, acts done or otherwise sanctioned in some way by the state. The court found that the state action doctrine is equally applicable to denials of privileges or immunities, due process, and equal protection of the laws. The critical factor in determining the existence of state action is not governmental involvement with private persons or private corporations, but the inquiry must be whether there is a sufficiently close nexus between the state and the challenged action of the regulated entity so that the action of the latter may be fairly treated as that of the state itself. Only by sifting facts and weighing circumstances can the non-obvious involvement of the state in private conduct be attributed its true significance. The Supreme Court asserted that plaintiffs must establish not only that a private party acted under color of the challenge statute, but also that its actions are properly attributable to the state. And the actions are to be attributable to the state apparently only if the state compelled the actions and not if the state merely established the process through statute or regulation under which the private party acted. The rules developed by the Supreme Court for business regulation are that, 1. The mere fact that a business is subject to state regulation does not by itself convert its action into that of the state for purposes of the 14th Amendment, and, 2. A state normally can be held responsible for a private decision only when it has exercised coercive power or has provided such significant encouragement, either overt or covert, that the choice must be deemed to be that of the state. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.